My dear brothers and sisters, I think that we uh, can see from our first study just how remarkable Abraham is in the record of God's dealing with man. We have a person there who's built so many altars to his name. The record is constantly characterized by his prayers and his petitions to God. By God's coming to him and telling him what the next part of the story might be. Promise after promise. It's unique. He is a friend. Jesus says that the, the test of a friend is that you can tell him what's on. You can tell him what the program is. And that's what God was doing to Abraham. He was with him all the time. Amazing man. Who else in our life do we know like that? Take the Lord Jesus Christ out of that question. But it is a unique standing that Abraham had in the purpose and interests of Almighty God. What a tragedy it was that Lot thought that he was going to have a better lot in the cities of opportunity. The record says plainly that the inhabitants, verse 13 of chapter 13, says the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before Yahweh exceedingly. Hey, that's really turning it on us now. Sometimes in our own society now, we're seeing situations that we would describe like that. They were pretty rare until very recently. How would he have thought when he walked through the streets of the city of Sodom, which seems to be particularly many corners? How would he feel when he saw things like that and remembered Uncle Abraham? What about the little chats at night? What about the communications that he would have had from him? Little pieces of wisdom, encouragement, helping him to see the, the full picture and understand what the living God was doing. How could Lot have been able to endure the environment of Sodom and Gomorrah? He had one of the most Beautiful environments that a man ever had. It was just the folly of riches, of possessions, or lack of control to have his officers under control. Say, be quiet here. Leave Abraham's servants alone. We're with him, not he with us. But he didn't do that. He lacked. And he went down into Sodom and Gomorrah. All you can find of Sodom and Gomorrah now is a hole. It's uh, an archaeology site today. One of our brethren, actually, in England has been there, taken many 
I don't say so for profit. That's all it is. And the story of luck, wherever it goes, is always compromised. Peter says some very nice things about Lot in his epistle, and no doubt the truth. But what a loss to have an uncle like Abraham, where God is coming to him time and time again, and, and you know all about it. All the other people out there, they don't you do. You've got very privileged environment. Yet he left it. I suppose his wife noticed the lovely dresses in the shops. And she went down there to say, do you have a shop? And I thought, well, this is marvellous. Don't have to go past the cattle yard and all the other things that were there. And I can sleep now in another lovely, nice uh, home. Everything was different. Different environment altogether. You know, my dear brothers and sisters, we are being challenged the same way all the time. The papers just full of stuff. Everything that comes through various mediums is just full of stuff we've got to have. You don't have it at all, do you? It doesn't mean to say it's going to make life much happier, perhaps more efficient sometimes. But you're bringing up children or grandchildren, and it's not going to help them much. Not in the real way it's helping them. It's the atmosphere of Abraham being to be developed in our homes, in our ecclesias. That's where the real development is made. He chose him all the plain of joy. Lot did. And Lot journeyed east. They separated themselves, the one from the other. It's obviously from the sense of verse 11 that, that Lot had a fair slice of land that he was able to call his own. It was exceedingly beautiful. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot chose him all the plain of joy. There's the two distinctive marks. Lot well, see how it creeps? He was just nearby. It's now verse 12. It says, Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain. The pressure of opportunities, special favours, easier life creeps upon a person, doesn't it? Now he's changed houses. He still seems to have his tent. His tent, verse 12, in Sodom. I don't think there were many people who had tents in Sodom. But he pitched his tent towards, towards Sodom. So perhaps he's on the, the outside suburbs of Sodom. I am sure, my dear brothers, that every night he would have had many thoughts about his uncle out there in the open fields, in his tent. Verse 13 then colours in the background. It was an area of very loose behaviour. Wicked and sinners before Yahweh. Exceedingly. That's a very strong statement, isn't it? 
How does Abraham feel? Well, God has some further thoughts for him. He's not forgotten. Abraham's been a man of considerable morosity since Lot left him. You know, Abraham is a great man. He's got this young man that's with him who's enjoyed such special blessings in his company. That young man leaves him. But he still wants to help him. That's how great Abraham was. He still wants to. He'll be in trouble in this chapter. Abraham will build an army to save him. He does. He does it very effectively. What a person that is. He doesn't go around telling everybody about what a letdown lot is. Or he should do this and he should do that. I bet he's doing this. But in all these well, stories that get, could get around about lot, and everybody would be wondering, wouldn't they? He gave that boy a lot of good things, you know. He gave him opportunities, he gave him experience, all the special favours that Abraham received. He heard all about that. It's very privileged company. How they were able to measure the special nature of the, of the boss Abraham? They would certainly think, young man, you're a foolish person to walk away from that man. And he was. There was no other place where there was anything like it. And Yahweh, verse 14, came to him. Very beautiful words. Verse 14 said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him. See, that's the point. Notice that. He's answering the circumstance that Abraham is, is affected by after he's lost the company of Lot. So Lot was sort of still the second-hand man, wasn't he? After that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes. And look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. Arguments about land? For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And thy seed? I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. Millions of people. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth and cut, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Where were such things ever said to a man? How did he sleep on that? What did he assess it to mean? It's limitless, isn't it? East, west, north, south. They all keep going. All the lands thou seest. Romans 4 will interpret that as he was promised the world. Because the language allows that, doesn't it? Really, that's the limit of that language. So now God tells him, it's not just this piece of land, you know, from here to here, you can see that far, and you're okay, well, that's how far it is. Just as far as you can see. It's not like Verse 17, Arise, walk through the land, in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. How much did you pay for this lovely land? Didn't pay a penny. God gave it to him. And he walked through the land in the length of it 
and the bread took it and he still just had his tent. He still had his memories of love. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shino. Ariok, king of Elasa. Kidolaoma, king, king of Elam. Tidal, king of nations. They were the four northern kingdoms that had confederated together. These made war with the five southern kingdoms. Here they are, verse 2. Sodom, king of Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shanab, king of Edman, and Shemeba, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela. King of Bela is the king of Zoar, as you come into Egypt. They confederated into five in response to the joining together of the first four in verse 1. Verse 2 lists a lot of local cities, that is, Sodom would have been the preeminent city among that group. There's a number of kings of the first group who were in a really known world. Title, king of nations, obviously, he was over quite a large area. All these were joined together in the Vale of Sidon, which is a salt sea. Twelve years they served Kedorlaomer, so Kedorlaomer was the leader of the first group. And he was obviously over the other territory as well until the rebellion. The 14th year came Kirolaema and the kings that were with him, that's the top group, smote the Ariphames in Ashtaroth, Karnan, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emmons in Shava, Kirinane. The Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wolves, returned and came to Enmishpan. A lot of people, a lot of joining together as a different persons. Verse 8 then focuses again on the larger picture. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admar, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bilar, the same as Zoram. That was the second group of five, wasn't it? And they joined battle with him in the vale of Sodom. With Kedor Naomi, the king of Elam, with Tarot, king of nations, Amraphel, Shina, Ariok, the last of four kings with five. The Vale of Sidon was full of slumbers. This is the circumstances of where they fought this battle. The northern kings against the confederacy around Sodom. Vale of Sidon was full of slime pits. It was a very slippery area, very heavily watered. That's why it was such slippery country. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they remained fled to the and they that remained, sorry, they that remained fled to the mountain, had to get out of this slippery country. It was hopeless where it was down below in the valley. And they took all they could, slipping around, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. They still had to grab what they could, but Sodom and Gomorrah were finished, weren't they? Well, they were in a state of wreck. And in the wreckage was Lot, verse 12. 
Abraham's brother's son. What a tragedy. And Abram got the message. Verse 13. One person escaped. I don't know who it was, but he had a lovely mind, didn't he? There's only one person that can help, is he thought. There came one that had escaped and told Abram to cross it over. The man whose life and family were different to the other people. He crossed over in that respectless world. For he caught in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Anah. And these were confederate with Abram. So Abram had some relationships with these peoples. Probably as a sort of general self-defense. This area had become very prone to, to uh, fences and various invasions. And so these two, three other people, they had considerable possessions and peoples related to them, and they were confederate with Abram. Now this morning is just a staggering verse, isn't it? Here's Abram, his, I was going to say, silly cousin, but perhaps we won't quite say that because he didn't do that. When Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. That's right up there. That's a long way to pursue. But that's what he did. For why? Because he heard that his nephew was involved and was taken and the Lord was thankless. Verse 15, he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobar, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Damascus is way on the other side, you see, of the river. Probably about 50 miles from where the, the run of the, the river is. How did they ever do such a thing? But Abram had a determination to win back his, his, uh, his brother, as he described in verse 6, Lot. And he brought back all the goods, verse 16, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods. You want to bring that old uh, coat with you as well? Yeah, okay. that's okay. And his goods. What goods, man? anymore to Lot. He's alive by the skin of his teeth. And the women also. And the people. So they had taken a lot of Lot's possessions. But he obviously had considerable number, verse 16 as well. But verse 17 is hard to read. And the king of Sodom Without to me. He, he nicked out of it. It says that he cleared off. They went their way, verse 11. Kings of those two cities. Now, would you believe the height of the man, the king of Sodom, 
Let's come back. He wants to get his share. There's been some recoupment of, of possession. And he thinks, well, I want to see what I can get out of this. King of Sodom, verse 17, went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kido Leonor, which must have been a very remarkable victory. 318 over his hordes of people. Abraham was successful. From the slaughter of Kedor Laoma and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's day. He's returned from that place. Not quite sure what that meant. But verse 18 is another remarkable turn up in this chapter, isn't it? Who's this next person? And Melchizedek, king of Salem. That's the only Melchizedek. There's no other Melchizedek in the Bible. King of Salem, Jerusalem, as we would call it, a bit further south. He came all the way up and he brought forth bread and wine. The king of Sodom and Melchizedek in the same company? Amazing. Melchizedek, king of Sodom, brought forth bread and wine. He wasn't concerned about stuff, the goods and all the rest of it. He built the memorials. He was one who wanted to exercise their, their worship, which they had at Sodom. Same. So he brought forth bread and wine as the priest of the Most High God. There was a priest of the Most High God in the days of Abraham, and we don't hardly hear a whisper of him. The dominant person in the work and the purpose of God in this section is undoubtedly Abraham. How interesting is that? Well, being a high priest, as he was in those days, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abel of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. See, he had a great regard for Abel. Note that. The king of Abraham, the king of uh, Jerusalem, the priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, he had a great regard. So he came all this away to place a blessing upon Abraham, possessed by the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. The king of Sodom said unto Abraham, Give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself. Give me the persons. Nathan said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto Yahweh, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abraham was quite able to give a little on the on the side exhortation, wasn't he? He gave the king of Sodom a real dressing down. I have lifted up mine hand unto Yahweh, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Lord, I'll take 
from a thread even to a shoe latch, shoe and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldst say, I have made Abram rich. There was already feeling between Abram and uh, the local people as far as his stand was concerned. But his friend was obviously Melchizedek, mentioned in verse 18. And Abram's going to take nothing from the king's soul. Now look at the difference. Lot is nearby. He hears this. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up out my hand unto Yahweh, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread to a shoelace that is thine, and thou shouldest stay. Perhaps I have made Abram rich. Look at the difference. What had Lot put up with if that was the mind of the king of Sodom? That's the type of person he was. Now come in to get what's the crumbs of the event that's occurred. Maybe perhaps just needed a little bit of food for those that had helped with the occasion. But that's where Melchizedek comes in. What an amazing story. There's a lot more to be learned about that sometime, isn't it? We won't diverge into some. 10 and Hebrews because it will take the rest of our time. But in the end of that chapter there's again another statement. Verse 13, he said unto Abram, No surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. The promises have been made, we, we read those, and the, the depth of the country that's involved, and then it says will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. That's a different phase, isn't it? And also that nation whom they shall serve, will I judge, I'll look after the matter, said God. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. That nation, of course, was going to be Egypt. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Is this not answering the concerns that Abraham would have had at that stage? So in verse 17, you can see this is addressing that situation. Can you pass that? When the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates and all the others are then mentioned, the whole ten of them, Kenites, Kenizzites, Canaanites and so on. Unto thy seed have I given this land. Abraham no doubt was concerned that there might be further eruptions in the circumstances. God says it's not going to involve you. But he remembered another occasion where the living God came to a man on earth that got through nerve-wracking experiences, terrible experiences, was left almost with no nephew at all, no, no part of his family almost at all. 
Now Sarayla Adrian's wife, there he no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarayla said unto Abram, Behold now, Yahweh hath restrained me from bearing. She understood what the problem was. God had gave her children. He was the giver of life. I pray thee, going unto my maid, I've waited long enough. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham, Abraham was sympathetic to the situation. Sarah was a, a beautiful wife that he had, and she was desperate to have children. Which he had been unable to. But she's now offering her mate. And Sarai, verse 3, Abram's wife took Hagar, her mate, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And it was successful. He went in. Unto Hagar she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid unto, into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. Yahweh judged between me and thee. Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do as you please. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And then that uh, was written by the angel of Yahweh, verse 7, making it certain that there would be a role to play in the child that would be born. So Ishmael would be the one that would come out of that. She called the name of him. Verse 11. The angel of Yahweh said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh hath heard thy affliction. You notice that all of these verses, verse 7, 9, 10, 11, they all begun with the expression, the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh said unto her, the angel of Yahweh, verse 10, said unto her, again in verse 11, and she called the name of Yahweh that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the world was. So the Arab peoples, had their father in Ishmael. Isn't it lovely that that's put alongside Sarah and her desire for a child? And yet her maid had a child before Sarah did. She was a, a maid to Sarah. And uh, more in line with the circumstances of their, of their lives. That child then became Abram's son. Well, uh, years went by, 
when Abram was 90 years old and nine, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the, the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now he's almost 100 years. He came into Canaan when he was 75. There's been 25 years in which Abram and Sarah were not able to have a, a child in common. That's a tremendous thing to consider, isn't it? Look at the things that have been promised. And yet there was no child. The promises made to Abram required a child to be born to him and Sarah. And so answering that, it says in verse 1, when Abram was 90 years old and nine, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect, and I'll make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. What? Talk about me. Problem of the moment. That is a very beautiful sentence, isn't it? She's distraught. Abraham's lost confidence. He's now got this boy, but it's not his wife's. It doesn't really fulfill the sense of the, of the covenant. Abraham did what you might expect. He fell on his face, and God talked with him, son. Now I just suggest to you that if you've got a colouring pencil there, just in verse 3, underline that. God talked with him. Did you know this is what happens? It's one of the longest pieces where God talked to a man. But look how he met the concerns of that couple. Wonderful couple devout and consistent in their life, been through amazing circumstances and will go through it even yet more. But he hears, doesn't he, the request. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and keep up the things that you are doing. I will make my covenant between me and thee I've given a covenant. I will keep it, says God. Between me and thee. And will multiply thee exceedingly. He heard. What he promised, he would fulfill. The final little bit that is given in our Bibles must be one of the most cherished little statements. It's a long statement here of God speaking to a man. But as we read it through, try and pick up the, the echoes that are coming through. It's full of repetitions and repeated phrases. You only repeat something when you're talking to someone if you think it's important. Or if you think you might have got the whole idea of it, you repeat it. You might say it a little bit louder. You might put a few words to it. But this little section, and it starts in verse to, goes down to verse uh, 8, is full of repetitions. Read it 
Let's read it together. In that sense, because this is God really moved to say he's going to do what he said he will do. It's a very, very beautiful part of our Bible. He says, verse 2 to Abraham, it's all to Abraham. Who's Abraham to receive a conversation like that? Remember what the name friend meant? You tell him your friend because he understands. He's got the same mind. That's a friend. This whole bit is to Abraham. No one else about Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, as for me, is that God speaking to a man? Is he explaining something to him? It's very, very beautiful. But God's a tremendous hardship, and God is absolutely aware of the circumstances. I will multiply the exceedingly was the preface. As for me, if you want to know, Abraham, where I am in these circumstances, behold, my covenant is with thee. You couldn't have it more sure. As far as children are concerned, thou shalt be a father of a boy. A nation, the father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations. A father of many nations have I made thee. And to make sure that you you know that that's the case, I'm putting it into your name. You're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. You've got a new name, and it commemorates that fact. Neither shall thy name any more be Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. My dear brothers and sisters, when did God speak to a man like that? It's just sensational. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful. It's not going to be just a whole lot of people around the place, a lot of numbers. They will be exceedingly fruitful. And I'll make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. It's not going to be a second-rate nation. This is going to be a royal nation. There will be people that will become kings that will come out of you, your, your substance, out of your family. This is God talking to a man. You feel almost as though we've been interrupted in the conversation, don't you? Have we got any right to hear such precious words? And I'll make the exceeding fruitful, I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and they did. You heard the books of kings, chronicles? Kings, plural. Whether they're of Judah or whether they're of Israel, they came out of Abraham. And history has recorded that. 
in a book that's longer or more significant than any other book. And I'll make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. See, the whole history is in his mind, it's in God's mind. And for just a short little time, he's letting Abraham in to the big, long story. Because he treasures him so much. It's, it's just, it's hardly another thing in any other person's life in, in the record of Scripture that really measures up to the intimacy that's involved in this conversation. I will establish my covenant between me and thee. There's a covenant involved as well. And thy seed after thee. It's not just to one person. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed. The covenant doesn't stop with you, Abraham. It will go to your children in their generations for an everlasting covenant. It won't tire. It's not a human document. It's not a, a human promise. An everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And he's done it. Still doing it. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land. That was the original comment. Unto a land that I will show thee in chapter 12. He hasn't forgotten a word of what he said. Wherein thou now art now a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And through it all, I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. Now those verses, my dear brothers and sisters, aren't they just absolutely amazing verses? Verse 4 down to verse 9, verse 10. What exceedingly wonderful comments they are. I don't know any sort of longer section of scripture that continues that emphasis of God making himself true, promising himself to be true to a man. We are very privileged, my dear brothers and sisters, to have what we call the hope of Israel. And you can see, can't you, why it's so special. If we were to walk away from this, if we were to walk away from the truth, there's many things to do. But this is what we're walking away from. That promise comes to those that are in Christ. When Stephen would wake up his people and his generation, as in Acts chapter 7, when he would try to wake them up to see what they were really seeing in recent times in Jerusalem, this is where he started. The God of glory, that's how he described God as he opened his, his comments, who spake unto our father Abraham, 
was the touching point. All this is the basis. It's the promise. It's spelled out and repeated and repeated and repeated to Abraham. Who by? By the God of glory, because there's no other. The God of glory is there, speaking to him like a man speaks to his friend. The comment is made. The fact that God was behind it was Jehoshaphat when he spoke of it. He could say, these men, these tribes have come against Israel, but, but you're our God. We were the one that you chose. Now they come against us and you're the God of Abraham. Our friend, you understand this. Can't wait away, my dear brothers and sisters, from the hope of Israel because there isn't any other. That's what the Bible contains. That's what God gave us. And it's our role to maintain that sure and steady in all the different fluctuations that are happening in our generation. And to remember, there isn't any other. Jesus is not the son of men. He's the son of God alone. And he's going to be the king appointed. This is his plan. It is his determination. Abrahamic faith in those circumstances means that we, like Abraham, maintain that steadfast conviction and don't yield it. Whether we mix among the Sodomites of today, generation that we have, if they put anything in the paper, no matter what, couldn't care less. But we have to retain our calling, sure and strong and persistent, and pass that on to our dear children that are learning those things. My dear brothers and sisters, may we take from this the great fatherhood to Abraham. The interest that he had in Lot, Lot that really let him down. He let him down and chased the other nations. Chased them! Hundreds of miles to get Lot to bring him back. That's the sort of tenacity that we need in holding our members and seeing their needs and knowing that the living God, Abraham, still lives today. Thank you.